Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look at the final words of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 toward the end of the chapter. Just look for the final paragraph or two. We'll read from Matthew 7, 24 to the end of the chapter. Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet, it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, that is, the whole Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Everyone has a house. And everyone has to build his or her house on a foundation. Everybody has, therefore, a foundation. The wise have a foundation, and the foolish have a foundation. What is your foundation? And what does it say about whether you are wise or foolish? Some time ago, I read a really remarkable book telling the story of the Christian conversion of a remarkable man from Russia back during the most violent days of communist persecution there. The story was truly amazing. I wish I could tell it here. I can just give a few details. This man came to Christ as an adult, lived self-sacrificially for others, and was rescued miraculously from death on multiple occasions by his merciful Lord. It was really sobering and inspiring to me to see someone building his life, founding his life on the rock of Jesus' words and constructing that life, constructing that house while the storms were already raging. It seems like the violent persecution came before he could even get the roof up. And yet at key moments of high drama, when he faced the kind of violent persecution that I doubt any or many of us in here has ever faced, Uh, or even come close to. This Christian could not be crushed or shaken. No, he stood because he was standing on the rock. He boldly testified for Christ, and he actually managed to escape in God's providence to the Western world where he could worship Jesus without the kind of violent and overt government persecution he suffered under communism. It was amazing to see this person stand under all kinds of storms. And this can be true of you. This can be true of everyone who hears Christ's words and does them and acts on them. Look again at your Bible, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Now, in the context of this passage, which everybody who wears this tie is supposed to say at least once in a sermon, in the context, which comes at the uh, very end of the Sermon on the Mount, 
These words of mine refer to the Sermon on the Mount. 1,938 Greek words. I counted them. Matthew 5 through 7. And those are translated into 2,326 English words, if you must know. Write that down, somebody. Words printed in red in some of your Bibles that you're carrying. We call these words the Sermon on the Mount because Matthew 5, 1 says that um, Jesus went up on the mount, sat down, opened his mouth, and taught his disciples. It's certainly possible that Jesus spoke more words in this sermon than are recorded here in Matthew 5 through 7, but we, we don't know that. Maybe this is an expert summary. But uh, we know that these words of mine that we can hear and act on are the words that we have in our Bibles in front of us. Hear these words, Matthew 5 through 7. Act on them, and you will be like the wise man that Jesus described. Now, let's be careful about this. I think most of us intuitively take these words of mine in verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. I think we usually take this statement to refer more broadly to all of Jesus's words, not just the ones in this particular Sermon on the Mount. How could it be that as disciples, as slaves of Jesus Christ, which is what we in the church are supposed to be, How could it be that we would be able to disregard any words that he ever spoke? He told his disciples to disciple all nations, teaching them to observe everything he commanded. So everything, every red letter in your red letter edition of the Bible is part of the rock on which you must build your life if you want it to stand when the rains and the winds and the floods come. And to be a bit pedantic and detail-oriented about it, I don't think Jesus is trying to exclude the rest of the words of the Bible from this statement. How did Jesus himself treat the words of the Old Testament? He treated those words as authoritative, as part of the rock that we are to stand on. He cited the example of Adam and Eve as a model for human sexual relationships. He cited the example of the repentance of the Ninevites as warning a warning for those who refuse to repent in his day. And he repeatedly cites the Old Testament in this very sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. So I believe that the black letters in the Bible too are needed for a well-founded life, a life on a rock. Nonetheless, Jesus' focus here is the words of the Sermon on the Mount, and that will remain our focus. We're gonna talk about words. It's time to get a little bit technical, just a little. For Bible nerds like me, you know, we often find excuses to get technical. But I think everybody in here who's interested in the Bible, in understanding it, is going to be interested in what we're going to go through here. You've possibly heard what we're about to talk about in English class, actually. Maybe I'm reminding you of something that you already know, because we're going to talk about metaphors. Metaphors. A metaphor is one thing that represents another thing. It's, as I like to say, holding up two things next to one another, bringing them close, and hoping that a little spark of electricity jumps between the two, illuminating them both, increasing our understanding. And metaphors are commonly said to have two major elements. This is where we're going to get technical. I'm only going to ask you to remember two technical terms that I think will be helpful to you in your Bible reading. Tenor and vehicle. The two major elements of a metaphor are tenor and vehicle. The tenor is the thing that you're describing, trying to illuminate. The vehicle is the picture or the symbol or the parallel or the object 
that you're using to describe that thing. So let's think through an example before we go back to look at Jesus's metaphors here at the end of Matthew 7. I asked my wife's permission to share this, just so you know. One day, early in our our marriage, I was sharing with my wife some kind of failure that I'd had at work. I, I really can't remember, you know, maybe I failed to meet a deadline or failed to please my boss. And in order to encourage me, my wife used two metaphors. Can you spot them? She said to me, don't worry, you're batting 100 with me, baby. Her first metaphor was a baseball metaphor. Baseball fans here will have already realized that my wife does not claim to be a baseball expert. What she meant to say was that I was batting a thousand. As stated, she actually said that she is pleased with my performance as a husband 10% of the time. I pointed this out to her, we had a good laugh, we still remember it to this day. It's the thought that counts. Now, the vehicle of this metaphor is baseball batting averages. The tenor is the meaning she was trying to get across. my success as a husband in her eyes. She was trying to communicate uh, my success as a husband by comparing me to the success of an impossibly awesome baseball hitter who gets on base every single time. You could sort of think of the vehicle carrying the tenor to its intended destination. This is metaphor. We do this all the time in language to the point where we hardly notice. I just love language. What was the second metaphor that she used? You're batting 100 with me, baby. It's the word baby. Baby is a name that spouses or boyfriends or girlfriends use for one another because babies are pleasant and precious, and so are spouses or or, uh, boyfriends and girlfriends. Literal babies could never bat 1,000, you know, uh, certainly not even 100. Baby in a context like this one is a metaphor. It's worth actually our slowing down and thinking this through so we can understand what Jesus says. Just think about it a little more. Both batting a thousand and baby are such common metaphors that the literal meaning doesn't even occur to us anymore. These metaphors have actually lost the punch that they probably had when they were first used. Punch is also a metaphor that's probably lost a bit of its punch. The same might go for the metaphors that Jesus used in this passage, precisely because we're so accustomed to hearing about the rock and the rains and the floods and the winds. Precisely because it's so familiar, the metaphor may have died. Some of its meaning, some of the tenor may have leached out. So let's slow ourselves down using the tools that I've just offered, the understanding of metaphor to understand the metaphors that Jesus uses. I see many, and all of them interlocking. I see house building. I see a large rock. I see rain and floods and wind. And I see houses standing here in just the first two verses of our passage today. So again, we're gonna slow down and unpack these. This kind of exploration is part of the delight of metaphor. Jesus didn't have to use metaphor. He could have just said it literally but he leaves some room for our imagination and encourages us to enter into the metaphor to explore the ways in which vehicles bring us tenors. There's our technical terms. So let's talk about house building. People who hear Jesus' words and act on them. Look at verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. House building is the vehicle here. What's the tenor? 
In what way is listening to Jesus and doing what he says akin to house building? When you make yourself, when you force yourself to stop and think and maybe even write down these questions and write down answers in your Bible study time, you see the challenge and the richness of metaphors, which Jesus uses all the time. It's a bit difficult to prove with the metaphor that you're interpreting it rightly, but nearly every Bible interpreter I checked saw the same thing that I've always seen my entire life in this passage. They saw the same tenor. The house is your life. The act of building that house is like the choices you make in your life. Every day, you're constructing a biography, a life story. You're building a house. Everybody does this. Everybody builds a house. Some of you are living in a Sears kit home that was purchased from a mail-order catalog in the 1940s. You know who you are. Your home is starting to show some creaks and cracks. Your house of a life has what real estate agents call character. Others of you are just starting, really, to build your house. You're in the planning stages of building. It remains to be seen what kind of house you will build and where you will build it. That, of course, leads us to our next metaphor, rocks, large rocks. The rock, just look at it, verse 24, wise man builds his house on the rock. The rock is a very common metaphor in Scripture. The very first time that rock is used as a metaphor in Scripture is in Deuteronomy 32. Just listen to these stirring words from Moses. They're actually part of a song that he sings to Israel shortly before his death. He sings, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. He's calling God the rock. That's the tenor of the metaphor. How is God like a rock? What's the connection? Again, this is worth some exploration. It's going to help us understand this passage here in Matthew 7. And there are wrong answers. That itself can be helpful. What if someone said, God is a rock. God is inert like a rock. No, that's not it. God is cold like a rock. No, God is unfeeling like a rock. No, no, that's not it. These features of rocks are surely not what Moses is pointing to. Instead, it simply has to be God's stability, his firmness, his strength, the protection that he affords. In this same song of Moses in Deuteronomy, Moses talks about God being the rock of our salvation. But then he also, while speaking to Israel, calls God the rock who fathered you. That's an interesting mixture of pictures. Metaphors are rich. This is worth some meditation. Think of other uses of the rock metaphor. The psalmists say, the Lord is my rock. Another psalmist prays, be strong, be my strong rock. Psalmists call God my strong rock and my refuge. And Moses ends his song with a contrast very much like what Jesus is doing here. A contrast between Israel's God and the gods of the nations, lowercase g. He says in Deuteronomy 32, their rock is not like our rock. Rock is the vehicle. Strength and solidity are the tenor, the meaning of the metaphor. And clearly the same holds true for Jesus' use of this metaphor. Jesus' words are as reliable as God is, no doubt because he himself is fully God. Jesus' words are a rock of salvation. They are a rock that fathers us, bringing us to spiritual life. 
His words are a rock that is unlike any of the knockoff rocks that we'll talk about when we get to the foolish man. And Jesus' words will need to be strong and stable and solid because of the next metaphor that Jesus uses here. Look at it in verse 25. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. We could sum up all of these words with one. Storms. What does this metaphor mean? To be pedantic again, sorry to be a bit of an English teacher for a second, but I think it's going to help us. The vehicle is storms. The tenor, the meaning, is trials and struggles and difficulties. Or is it? Storms are like trials. You don't know when exactly they're going to come, but they're going to come. And they can strike with incredible fury, tossing cars around parking lots in Arkansas and blowing my kid's trampoline up to the top of Mount Baker, where I think you can still see it on a clear day. Jesus was utterly steeped in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, and careful readers of the Bible have noticed that storm imagery works on two levels. It works in the present and in the future. Just listen to this sentence from Psalm 57, which David wrote while he was in a cave hiding from King Saul. You tell me, does this storm imagery talk about a present storm or a future one? David says, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Present or future? I think it's present. That's a very present distress. He's actually suffering the threat of loss of life from the king who's trying to kill him. But now listen to this use of storm imagery from Jeremiah. Is this present or future? Behold, the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. I didn't give you much context, but I'll say this is less clear to me. It could be present. Wicked people get judged by God's wrath every day, but it could be future. There are wicked people whom the Bible talks about as living without trouble until their end comes, until judgment day. Or listen to this brief use of storm imagery from a proverb of Solomon. When the tempest passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established forever. That's future. The Bible uses this kind of imagery, and I think Jesus is doing the same thing here in Matthew 7, to, to speak both of storms that come now and try to knock us down, and storm and a storm that will come on judgment day. So I think this is a rich metaphor that works on two levels. Let's think about the present meaning of storms. I think this is easier for us to grasp. The uh, old commentator J.C. Ryle talks about the floods of sickness, sorrow, poverty, disappointments, and bereavements. He says they beat upon the wise man in vain. His soul stands unmoved. His faith does not give way. He, his comforts do not utterly forsake him. His religion may have cost him trouble in time past. His foundation may have been obtained with much labor and many tears. To discover his own interest in Christ may have required many a day of earnest seeking and many an hour of wrestling and prayer. But his labor has not been thrown away. He now reaps a rich reward. The religion that can stand trial is the true religion. The ancient preacher Chrysostom, 1,600 years ago, made a similar point, an excellent point, about the stability that Jesus promises 
to those who build their lives on the foundation of his words. He said, what could be as good as this? For not even the one who wears the royal crown would be able to furnish this for himself. That is, he's saying, even the greatest king cannot be certain that he will stand in coming storms. And here Jesus says, if you build your life on my words, you will stand. And in the future, a judgment day will come, the Bible says, in which you will either stand or fall. Psalm 1 says that the righteous stands like a tree. The wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. And how does the first psalm end? The wicked will not stand in the judgment. The difference between the wise man's house and the foolish man's house is not the house. It's the foundation. Build your life on Jesus' words and you will stand in the congregation of the righteous someone says, in the day of judgment. Let's pause before discussing the foolish man. Allow me to help you use these words that we've just gone over in verses 24 and 25 by talking first about sexual sin. I'll be as delicate as I can, as delicate as Jesus was when he talked about this topic in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, any man who looks at a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And yet at 15 years old, when a wife seems like an incredibly remote prospect, you know, to many young men. And there are pornographic images literally 10 feet tall at the mall. I saw it yesterday at the Seattle Premium Outlets. Obedience for a 15-year-old boy requires a lot of trust. Obedience requires trust that Jesus' words are really rock solid. Pornographic images promise pleasure right now, this instant. At 15, you can't know. Not you don't know, you can't know what joys are available through obedience to Jesus' words. You have to believe that those words are there to make you stand instead of crumble in this life and to make you stand upright in God's presence on the last day. Now let me talk to 55-year-olds. Here's something Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount to you, although anybody in here needs to hear it. Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. It's so tempting if you at age 55 suffer professionally because of your Christianity. It's tempting to go vent on Facebook, to return railing for railing, as the old King James says. When you do that, you have received your reward. Five likes from other Christians. No, don't vent. Jesus says, rejoice. This is rock solid counsel for you. Kids, here's Jesus' rock solid counsel in the Sermon on the Mount for you. And this surely applies to everyone as well. But kids, if someone hits you on the right cheek, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, what? Turn to him the other also. And don't do it cheekily. Don't resist evil. I gave these words of counsel to two very large teenagers. I mean, big guys who, if they had decided to, could easily have crushed me. They were having a fight, and I was breaking it up at a weekly ministry. And one of them said to me, but my dad said you have to stand up for yourself. Okay, then, here's your choice. When dad and Jesus disagree, which one gives counsel that is a rock? 
Jesus gives many rock-solid words in the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies, pray in secret, forgive, don't lay up treasures on earth but in heaven, don't be anxious, get the two-by-four out of your eye before picking the piece of fuzz out of somebody else's. Do to others what you wish they would do to you. These are the words to build a life on. But countless people choose another way. Everyone has a foundation. Not everyone chooses the rock. Look at verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Back to English class, folks. What metaphors did Jesus use here? I see many and all of them interlocking. I see house building. I see sand. I see rain and floods and wind. I see houses falling and falling big time. It says great was its fall. I'm pretty sure if you check the Greek, it'll say it fell big time. House building for the fool and house building for the wise may initially look very similar. Both must expend effort and expense. Everybody's going to build a house. Everybody, in other words, is writing a biography with his or her choices. I won't say more about the house building metaphor. The focus here is on the next metaphor, sand. What does the vehicle of sand communicate? What is its tenor? What does it have to do with foolishness? How is sand in any way like the words on which someone builds a foolish life? Sand is interesting. It's made of rocks, actually, but it doesn't act like a rock. It's everything a rock is not. It's not strong. It's not stable. It's not firm. It's not solid. A Christian friend of my wife and me posted a funny meme on Facebook not all that long ago. It showed pictures from a bunch of old TV shows that many of us in here of a certain age or older grew up on. In each picture, some hero from the show was stuck in quicksand. The caption said, when I was a kid, I thought quicksand was going to be a much bigger problem on a daily basis than it really is. <laughs> this is true. I've never actually personally encountered quicksand. But it is real, I have discovered, and it's scary. If you watch the YouTube videos from Mark Rober, he has shown that sand that has just the right amount of air and water injected into it can suddenly be incapable of holding your weight. You fall right in as if you were just standing on air. In this life, you are permitted by God for a time to build the house of your life on words other than Jesus' words. But you are not permitted to determine what happens when the storms come. Let us now turn to the next metaphor, briefly, rain and floods and wind. Because the same storms that threaten the wise, both in the present and in the future, will come to the foolish. What will happen? Very briefly, sickness, sorrow, poverty, disappointments, bereavements, they come to everyone, wise and foolish, Christian and, and not. And that does bring us to the final metaphor here. Houses falling and falling big time. The foolish man's house does not stand in present trials. It falls. The foolish man's house will not stand on the last day. It will fall. Great will be its fall. I have seen, of course, many non-Christians who, and my heart goes out to them, so many of them are ignorant of the rock. 
what they've known they've rejected, but they haven't been given the same opportunity to hear Jesus' words that you have been given, even in just one sermon, let alone many others that so many of us have heard. It's painful to watch non-Christians who cannot stand upright when difficulties come. I don't rejoice in anyone's suffering and the anger or despair or bewilderment that some people have who have no knowledge of Jesus' words, it's heartbreaking. They have no rock. Their rock is not like our rock because it's sand. Their rock is broken into the million bits that we call sand. They have no big story of creation and fall and redemption to give them hope that their suffering might have meaning. They don't have the counsel of Jesus in so many individual cases and what to do. I've also seen some professing Christians who really withered and flailed under trial. People who have heard Jesus' words, but who in some cases revealed themselves to be actually living on sand. I've seen some people lose their faith. I can't bring myself to tell the stories of the people that I know, they're too painful. And I'm also sensitive about what it means to tell people's stories in recordings that go up online. But I will tell one, because I don't actually know this person, and I've done my best to make it impossible for anyone to know who I'm talking about. I've left out identifying details. I take this very seriously. The reason I did not mention personally identifying details when I told the brief story of the Russian Christian at the beginning who escaped to the West is because the story isn't all happy. The next part, the part the book I read doesn't tell, is the part about this remarkable Christian man's son. This was the little boy who had to endure some of the persecution his mother suffered. This was the little boy who learned Bible verses from his mom under the nose of those nasty communists. This was the little boy who escaped with his mom to religious freedom. Something in us, I think, expects a boy with a heritage like his to know in his bones that Christianity is true. He watched its truth unfold in the life of his uh, father. He saw miracles. You expect him to be living on the same rock as his father, the rock of Jesus' words. This man is well into adulthood now and has lived in the West for most of his life. I was so curious about his father's story that I went looking for any details I could find on his son. Sure enough, I found his son's personal website. And one of the first things I read there was a flat, open rejection of the idea that there is a rock out there for anyone to build their houses on. This is what the young man said. It's essential in your life to discern things for yourself and not accept anything as absolute truth, not from books and not from anything else. But I want to return to a statement that I made at the very beginning of the sermon, a truth I believe I'm drawing from this passage. Indeed, the title of my sermon, everyone has a foundation. This young man says he doesn't have one. There is no absolute truth. But he seems absolutely sure that that is the case. His foundation is apparently, according to the descriptions he gives on his website, you know, basically, ultimately, it's himself. He reveals his foundation when he literally says that your knowledge of yourself is the foundation, he used that word, for every action you take in life. He does have a foundation. Even if he says you shouldn't trust any books, there's nothing you should trust completely, he does trust himself. He urges people, build trust in yourself. Spend time with yourself. Discover your opinions. 
anybody who has grown up in the U.S. in the last several decades, anybody who's lived in, in our country will recognize that as very common advice in our culture. This young man had a large list of recommended books from Oprah Winfrey, Neil Donald Walsh, who did that book, Conversations with God, Deepak Chopra. These are some of our Western world's most popular realtors right now. They will happily sell you a plot of sand. And if you don't want to build your life on their sand, they'll at least sell you some sand of theirs that you can toss on your own plot. You can construct your own foundation. I've had a number of friends, thankfully not super close ones, who have apostatized, who have fallen away from the faith, a faith they once professed. Some of you... Uh, will know one famous uh, man who apostatized. And I don't mind this time mentioning personal details because his story is so public. He was a major Christian author whose books were very helpful to me. He was living in Vancouver when, this, when suddenly it came out he's leaving his wife and leaving the faith. That was a punch in the gut. It was a storm that beat against my own house. Apostasies make you face the question in a really insistent way. Is all this Christianity stuff really true? Is this really a rock? But here is a truth rock that has helped me so much that ultimately comes from Jesus' insight here. Everybody has a foundation. Someone who says that Christianity is false, that Jesus' words are not a reliable rock, that person is still building his or her house on something. He doesn't just have to defeat the truth of Christianity or the Bible. He has to establish the truth of some other worldview. As I have gotten older and watched more than one acquaintance fall away from the faith, I notice something. Every single one of the people that I've known personally that has fallen away from a profession of faith in Christ has adopted one of the alternative foundations that prevails in our American culture. Secularism was and is the major favorite. Not a single person I've known who apostatized adopted the beliefs of the Uyghur people of northwestern China. Nobody opted for the worldview of ancient Egyptians. <clears throat> okay, so just for a moment, let's consider the possibility that you only believe the Bible because you grew up in church. Well, as Tim Keller likes to say, you only believe in modern Western secularism because you grew up in the modern secular West. That sword cuts both ways. You can't just say, you are, your rock is not really a rock. <clears throat> you have to show me what your rock is. And it's awfully convenient that the rock that everybody I've known who's left the faith has adopted has been the one that's popular around us. What's the likelihood that this one really is the right one? Everyone has a foundation. And when I look at the ideas that prevail in mainstream American culture that say, we are rock, we are true. I'm appalled. They are less than sand. They are vapor. I cannot honestly say that Oprah and Chopra know no truths at all, that they, everything they say is a lie and false, but it sure seems to me that when I pick up their books, they are lighter than the paper that they're printed on. Past civilizations at least tried to get people to build their lives on truths external to them. Our poor blind world is urging everyone in Disney movie after Netflix show after New York Times bestseller to get people to build their lives on the most unstable of sands, their own sinful conflicting desires. You want me to give up my rock to whom I flee and am safe 
in exchange for the shifting and roiling quicksand of my own heart? You want me to build my life on the sands of believe in yourself? No way. That is the very definition of foolishness. Let me spend just a moment on the final words of this chapter, verses 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished these words, the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Have you ever read any older or ancient Jewish literature outside the Bible? I haven't read much, I admit, but I've dipped in here and there. And it is, as one writer described, a lot of quibbling and quoting. One expert in ancient Jewish literature, a Christian writer that I appreciate, he said, in Jesus' day and ever since then, Jewish teachers have taught by starting with parts of the Torah, that's uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and discussing what great teachers have made of them. Here's this rabbi's opinion, here's that rabbi's opinion, here's this rabbi's opinion, here's that rabbi's opinion. Teaching becomes a matter of laying out what other people have said rather than any individual teacher offering a brand new line of interpretation. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is quite blunt. This, he says, is what I say to you. Do you remember that phrase that he repeats? I love that. Why do faithful Bible preachers preach rather than give talks? Why does Pastor Patrick get so serious, use big gestures, sometimes speak extra loudly? Why do I do this? And fundamentally, why do preachers act like you're supposed to do what we say from the pulpit? Because good preachers do carry authority. It's not Jesus' authority, but it also is. It's not the direct authority of the Son of God. It's a derived authority. It's delegated. Delegated through this word, this rock. Insofar as I and anyone who stands in any pulpit here, in any ministry... Insofar as we accurately represent what Jesus says, you must obey. That's why we have you open your Bibles and why we put verses on the screens and why we tell you to look at the Bible verses. It's so you know the source of our derived and delegated authority. So with the authority of Jesus Christ himself, your creator and your redeemer behind me with the authority of the God-man who said, all authority on heaven and on earth is given to me. You go make disciples. With that authority behind me, I say to you, do the things that Jesus says. Be hearers of his words, yes, but not just hearers. Be doers also. Be believers of his words, yes, but not just believers. Faith without works is dead, being alone. Repent from your sin. Believe in Christ's death for your sin and in his glorious resurrection that conquered all death. And your faith will not be alone. You will produce fruit. Christ in his grace will make you stand. He will build your house. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Jesus' words are a rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. You build your house upon the rock.